It's a fascinating little story in the, uh, the middle of Matthew's gospel where we find Jesus beginning to tell his disciples, look, we're, we're heading to Jerusalem and things are going to go badly. When we get there, they're going to kill me. I'm, I'm going to be handed over. I will be killed. I will be raised on the third day, but this is going to take a turn for the worse. Now, Peter, who's hearing everything that Jesus said, Peter, who has been following Jesus for some time at this point, says, wait, wait a second. What, what are you talking about? Have we been following you for no reason? Have these years of sitting at your feet, has this all been a waste? What, we thought you were prepared to restore the nation of Israel. Whatever you're talking about now, just cut it out. This will never happen to you. We're not going to allow this to happen. And Jesus responds to Peter and the text Austin just read by saying, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. It's not, now, now Peter, let's calm down a little bit. Let's talk about this. He says, get behind me, Satan, he says, you're a hindrance to me because you're setting your mind on the things of man, not the things of God. Now, one of the things I find so interesting about this story in Matthew is that, that Jesus is clearly the rabbi. Peter is the student. Peter is the disciple. He's supposed to be following Jesus wherever Jesus leads, learning from him. But, but the moment things begin to look different than the way Peter envisioned he sort of steps in front of Jesus and says, I'll, I'll take the lead from this point on. Oh, it probably goes without saying, but as disciples of Jesus, that's never a good idea. We, we are disciples. We are followers for a reason because we often don't have our minds set on the things of Christ. We often have our minds set on the things of humans, on, on the things of culture or society, not the things of Christ. That there is this constant temptation to stop following and to start telling Jesus where we think he should be leading us. To stop listening and to start demanding. Now after speaking to Peter, we see Jesus then turn and address the rest of the disciples. We pick up in verse 24 where Austin left off. We read this, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Following Jesus places demands on us. We don't get to set the terms and conditions of this relationship. We accept that Jesus is leading. We are following whatever that might mean. And in this text, in Matthew, we discover that it means something quite challenging. We find that following Jesus requires that we deny ourselves, and just as Jesus is about to bear his cross in Jerusalem, we too are called to take up our crosses and follow him. So we're nearing the end of this season. 
Today is the sixth and final Sunday in Lent. We're actually going to conclude this series on the cross next week, Resurrection Sunday, which sounds a little bit odd, but next week we will explore the victory and rejoice in the victory Christ has won. But the season of Lent is drawing to a close. N.T. Wright said this of the Lenten season. I want to share it. He said, Lent is a time for discipline, for confession, for honesty, not because God is mean or fault-finding or finger-pointing, but because he wants us to know the joy of being cleaned out, ready for all the good things he now has in store. Ready for all the good things he now has in store. I love that. And I think it's, it's so good in relation to where we've been because one of the things we are, are hoping to achieve throughout this series, this journey to the cross, it, it's not just an intellectual exercise through which we hope to begin rightly thinking about the cross. It is in part that. We, we do hope that our minds will, will shift a little bit in how we understand what takes place in the cross, but any thorough Theology of the cross does not stop at the theoretical or cerebral level. The, the event of the cross has incredible implications for the details of our lives, even today, how we are living today. I think that's made incredibly clear in the, the passage we have read this morning from Matthew's gospel. So today, our conversation in regard to the cross, we're going to talk not about what is accomplished in the crucifixion per se, but rather what the cross is calling us to. The example of the cross. Example of the cross. Now, following somebody, somebody else, can, can be quite a stressful, a demanding exercise. Because when you follow somebody, you are, at least in some sense, relinquishing control to a certain degree. Maybe you have experienced this, following somebody to an unfamiliar destination in heavy traffic. Have you been there? All it takes is for your leader to unconsciously speed through a yellow light, right? Leaving you stranded at the red light, feeling lost and alone. <laughs> or maybe you've followed somebody in heavy traffic and they sort of switch lanes needlessly on a whim and you're swerving all over the place trying to read the mind of your leader and keep up. I remember as a kid visiting Germany, and this was before we had the luxury of taking our trusty Garmin with the added package of German roadmaps. So we were navigating with an old school road atlas of sorts, and I guess there were certain designations in this map that maybe we didn't understand. I don't know if it was colors or, or what, but... We thought we were following the appropriate path, but somehow we ended up in the city square. Now, it's important to understand this was not the city square like Springfield Square, where there's a road that you drive around. This was an old town city square where only pedestrians were allowed to be. And here we are driving our car. You want to talk about humiliating. There we are, stupid Americans in our stupid VW Golf, driving through an old town city square on cobblestone, surrounded by pedestrians, every one of them 
staring at us, glaring as the, the fools we were. But it gets better. Because every time we tried to exit the city square, following the map, we ended up in a street that had those large concrete pillars in the road to prevent stupid cars from driving into the old town city square. So we would drive down a road, come into those pillars, have to back up, find the next road. I, we must have found the only small alleyway that did not have those pillars that led us into the city square. It, it was a mess, and as a kid, so embarrassing. I was in the back seat and just humiliated. Following others, in our case, following a road map, isn't always a carefree or easy experience because we are necessarily relinquishing control to a certain degree, relying not on our own wisdom, but on the path somebody else has laid out for us. It is demanding. This is certainly the case when it comes to following Jesus. This is what we're considering today, the example of the cross. The cross is not just a means by which Jesus secures a path to salvation for us. It is also a way that he invites us into. And that invitation is not just, well, if you feel like it today, deny yourself and take up your cross. No, the invitation is if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, this becomes your life. This is your identity. It defines you, taking up your cross and following him. So I want us to consider today just a couple of ways in which Jesus and his journey to the cross is an example for us. First of all, we consider the journey itself. Jesus and the road he walks into Jerusalem. Today is Palm Sunday, as Austin mentioned in his prayer, the Sunday before Easter Sunday. This is a day on which the church has historically remembered and commemorated what has been referred to as the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. That is a bit tongue-in-cheek. Why? Because when we think about a triumph of any kind, what do we think? We, we tend to think of a lot of excitement, a lot of fanfare, displays of power and prestige, but that's not exactly the picture we get of this triumphal entry. This is how Luke describes the triumphal entry in today's gospel text from Luke chapter 19. We'll pick it up in the middle of the story in verse 35 where it says this, And they brought it to Jesus, it being the colt. They brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. I think it would be good to just slow down and envision this. Jesus sitting on a small colt. Verse 36, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones 
would cry out. So we, we see Jesus riding a colt into the city of Jerusalem. He arrives on the scene for the final week of his life, not by force, not really in power or prestige or, or clamoring for attention. He's riding a small donkey. We, we serve and follow a king who is changing the world. We believe that, but he changes the world in a manner that nobody expected. We saw that voiced in the text we read from Matthew where, where Peter rebukes Jesus. Cut that out. We won't let you be killed. But Jesus is changing the world in a manner nobody expected, namely through his humiliation, through his death and resurrection. Our king rules the world in humility, not grandeur or power. We really see this displayed throughout the life of Christ from the time of his birth and obscurity in the city of Bethlehem to his ministry that did undeniably attract a lot of attention, but it was never about popularity. It was never even about influence. And I know that that claim can sound like blasphemy in a Christian context because influence has been elevated as sort of this leadership buzzword within Christian culture, but it doesn't seem to be the way that Jesus embraces. I mean, if you think of the path of Jesus walking into the city of Jerusalem, if you think of that in light of the social media era we live in, it's quite a contrast. In today's world, you can purchase followers. You can purchase influence, which just speaks to the importance that we place on this idea of influence. I've got to have influence. I've got to have a voice and, and some say in all these people's lives. But Jesus points us in a different direction. Jesus chooses obscurity, humility, riding a donkey into Jerusalem, not a war horse, not arriving via motorcade or with great pomp and circumstance. He, he brings change in a manner that if we have our minds set on the things and the, the ways of man, he's bringing change in a way that doesn't at all make sense. Change can't happen like that. This has to be what's going through, through Peter's mind. If we're going to go to Jerusalem and you're going to be killed, none of our plans are going to come to fruition. Kingdom rule, authority, none of that can be achieved on this humble path. But it seems as though Jesus would say, well, that's because you're looking at all of this from the wrong perspective. This is actually the only way that the change I'm interested in can occur. This is the only way that my kingdom advances. And if we as his followers can accept this, we too are called to join him in this path of humility. I saw Brian Zond recently tweet this. He said, Jesus does not call his followers to change the world directly, for that would tempt us to covet Caesar's sword of coercive power. Rather, we are called to change the world indirectly by being the world already changed by Christ and attracting others to join us. We follow Jesus through humility, not success, 
not influence, we follow Jesus in humility. That's the path that Jesus walks to the cross. What about the cross itself? How is the crucifixion an example for us? Now, this is where the conversation may get a little bit uncomfortable, if it's not already. Let's turn our attention to 1 Peter chapter 2. We read this beginning in verse 18. It's going to be a pretty lengthy section, so we'll maybe pause halfway through. Verse 18, we read this. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. So that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. I guess we didn't pause in the middle. Peter says, Christ also suffered for you. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. Peter's making an audacious claim here. Christ died not just to get us into heaven. Christ died not just to save us at some point in the future, but Christ died to save us now by showing us how to live. Peter says, you've been called to suffer, to endure great trial and tribulations with grace. Why? Because this is the example we have in Jesus Christ. He suffered for us. So this is another perspective on how exactly Jesus died for us. He died for us, leaving an example for us to follow. Now, I think we can hear this so often that it's easy to become desensitized to the audacity of this claim. I mean, when I actually begin to think about this suggestion, my response is much like Peter from that story in Matthew. Wait a second, I think it's time for me to step in front here, and I think I have a better path for us. I'm all for following Jesus if it means health for me personally and for my family, if it means wealth, if it means success, if following Jesus is going to make my life quantifiably better according to my definition of the good life, I'm all on board. If it works out for my benefit or for my ideal of self-preservation, let's go. Just like Peter and Matthew. If it leads to the overthrow of Rome, 
If it leads to a return of the glory of Israel, Peter is all on board for following Jesus. But as soon as it begins to look different than that, Peter says, all right, it's time for me to step in front. I'll take us from here. The cross of Jesus calls us not just into obscurity, not just into humility, but self-denial. Self-denial for the sake of our faith and our faithfulness to Christ, but also self-denial for the sake of others. The Apostle Paul, in that lengthy discourse on the resurrection of Christ in 1 Corinthians, and where where he relates that and, and argues that based on the resurrection of Christ, we can trust in the resurrection of the dead who are in Christ. We're going to explore that in more detail next week. But in the middle of that discourse in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I die, I die daily. This is a habitual lifestyle. I die daily. Paul seems to have accepted his vocation, his identity, his suffering as a follower of Jesus. He seems to have accepted it in a way that few are able to. But it is what we are called to pursue. Because following Jesus is not just about how that benefits me. We follow Jesus in his path of humiliation, suffering, and death, if we follow him at all. This isn't an add-on for the super spiritual. This isn't an add-on for those impractical ascetic monks that move off into a monastery and do whatever they do in the desert. All disciples, all followers of Jesus are called to follow the example of the cross. The example of the cross. What does that mean in any practical sense? I mean, it certainly doesn't mean that we would all be crucified. Probably doesn't even mean that we would all be killed in even a more humane way. But we are to follow the example of the cross in that we embrace weakness. We embrace suffering. We willingly sacrifice our own desires and comforts and our sense of self-preservation for the sake of others. The author of Hebrews, who is encouraging their audience to run the race of faith with endurance, and to sort of bolster that argument, they say, Look to Jesus. Jesus is our model of one who runs that race of faith with endurance. Says he endured death on the cross. How? For the joy that was set before him. The joy that was set before him. And what is that joy? It's not personal comfort. The joy that was set before Jesus that gives him the strength to endure the cross was not his own ego. It was you and it was me. It was every member of the human Race. We are the reason Jesus endured humiliation and death. Think about that. What sacrifice for the sake of others? What love? Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, but rather think of. Others Think of the needs of others before you 
think about your own. And what is the basis for his argument? He says, have this mind among you that is in Christ Jesus. Again, Christ is our example. Have this mind in you that is in Christ Jesus, who in the cross, in the cross, demonstrates absolute humility and sacrificial love. So this is what we're getting at, a theology of the cross. Thinking rightly about the cross necessarily leads to a cruciform way of life. A life that is motivated by, informed by, inspired by the example of Jesus on the cross. And in the weakness of the cross, as we begin to accept our task of taking up our crosses and following Jesus, as we die daily, as Paul said, we allow the power of God to work through our lives to advance the kingdom. So our inability, our limitations, our weaknesses, our suffering, those are not liabilities, but rather those are means through which God can use us. This is central to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our lives are not about our own potential but about God working through our weakness and using us for his purposes by his power. The way of Jesus, walking to the cross. The way of Jesus, walking to the cross, is humility. Not power. Not influence. It's humility. The example of Jesus on the cross is suffering and death, not success. The crucifixion is self-sacrifice for the sake of others as a decision over and against unyielding commitment to self-preservation. And this is the path we have been called to. But how in the world can we do it? How in the world can we do that when everything in us inclines our minds towards limiting our suffering, avoiding our weaknesses, avoiding our pain? Well, I think we get a clue for a way, a practical way forward for us in the final words of Jesus. While hanging on the cross, before he dies, we read it in Luke chapter 23. We'll begin in verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I think this is it. Everything we've been trying to get at throughout this series, through our journey to the cross, when we arrive at the cross, there are undeniably demands placed on us by Jesus himself. When we follow Jesus, we follow the way of the cross. And how do we do that when everything in us is working for self-preservation? 
I think this is it, the final words of Jesus. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. I am following, I'm not taking the lead, I'm following you. I'm, I'm learning to trust you, whatever that might mean for my current situation. I'm relinquishing my ideal of self-preservation to follow wherever you lead, even if it doesn't make sense to me, even if it costs me a lot even if it leads to heartache and suffering. I'm trusting. I'm following. I'm trusting the one who judges justly. Kevin, if you want to come up as we begin to transition into a celebration of the Eucharist. In his book, Cross-Shattered Christ, Stanley Hauerwas says this, of this episode from Luke 23, the final words of Jesus. He said, this great work makes possible our baptism into his life and into his death. By giving himself up and commending his spirit to the Father, Jesus invites and enables us to give ourselves up and become united with him in a death like his. Would you stand this morning? Lord Jesus, today we are reminded of the demands that following you places upon us. We are reminded that the cross is not just a means by which you secure our salvation in the future, but it is a way that you are saving us today by showing us through your cross, through your path of humiliation, you are showing us how to live. This is a difficult reality. We pray that you would give us the courage to accept it. We pray that you would give us the courage to embrace humility, to pursue humility, to embrace the way of self-sacrifice for the sake of our faith and for the sake of others. Lord Jesus, we are dependent on you. We look to you for help. I'm going to say a prayer for us as a way of invitation to the table this morning. Just as a practical note, we'll invite, invite you forward. Two lines will form down the center aisle. There will be somebody here with the elements. You'll hear the words spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. You can take the elements on your own and return to your seat. prayer as a way of invitation. Almighty and everlasting God, in your tender love for us, you sent your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to take upon himself our nature and to suffer death upon the cross, giving us the example of his great humility. Mercifully grant that we may walk in the way of his suffering and come to share in his resurrection through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Would you join us at the table this morning?